All right. Hey, good morning. My name is Robert Cavolo. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. It's good to be with you. You know, I was feeling nostalgic as I was getting ready to preach today. Last time I preached was not this summer, but the summer before, a little over a year ago. And I was just thinking about all the changes that have taken place in our church in such a short time. It's been an amazing thing, and it seems like God has done a lot this past year. Um, and I'm also reflecting on how thankful I am uh, for this congregation. I know I speak on behalf of all the staff when I say that um, we've just been warmly welcomed. Um, you know, so that we've got some new staff if you're new here, okay? So uh, this congregation is warm and kind, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful for the spiritual leadership here. The, the elders of this church are godly men who care deeply for the health of this church and life, and they give sacrificially. And, and of course, um, I'm really grateful for our lead pastor, Josh Swanson. You know, Josh and Alicia have come here, and they've just jumped in with both feet. They provided strategic vision, and Josh has given compelling sermons. And he's brought together this new staff, and he's leading our church into this next chapter. And it's exciting. It's an exciting time, and God is doing something here at this church. So uh, I feel touched to be a part of it, and I feel grateful I woke up just like, Woo, I got to preach today. Uh, I just felt so much joy. I love preaching, you know. It's, so I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Today we're in our second week of a study in the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a remarkably subversive little book. You know, it's such a well-known story, and I think one of the reasons it's so well-known is because it's so odd. It's just a strange story. Uh, you have the prophet of God, the man of God, and what is he like? Well, he's a rebel. He refuses to pray. He's running from God. Then you have the sailors in the story. What are the sailors like? Well, the sailors are, you know, like sailors are. I mean, even in the ancient Near East, the sailors were the same. A rough sort, not known for the most flowery language, if you get my drift, right? But they're praising God in the story. They're worshiping God. You have the murderous uh, king of Nineveh, you know, the, one of the most treacherous empires in the ancient Near East. He hears a five-word sermon, and he repents. His whole kingdom repents. Even his cows and the sheep, everything repents. It's just an odd story. And today we're going to look at a part of the story that the book of Jonah is arguably most known for, where Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. Uh, it's a very dramatic part. And what's really interesting is, is the narrative, when it hits the end of chapter 1, it stops. And when Jonah goes through this traumatic event, it, it opens up this window where we get to see how Jonah processed this trauma. Where we get to see what in the world happened inside Jonah as he was swallowed by this large fish. We get a glimpse of Jonah's internal life and his response to God in his prayer. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the prayer of Jonah. We're going to do this in three steps. It's a sermon, three points. You know, it's, I, I used to hate three-point sermons. Like, that is so predictable. Like, have a five-point sermon, or a four, but three, really? But you know what? The reality is, it's easy to remember three, right? And not only that, but I have three C's, so it gets worse. So here's our three C's this morning. First, we're going to look at the context of Jonah's prayer in verses 1, 17 to 2, 1. Then we're going to look at the content of Jonah's prayer, 2, 2 to 9. And then we're going to look at the comic results of Jonah's prayer. So first, let's take a look at the context of Jonah's prayer. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Jonah. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in front of you, that's on page 982. As I said last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 1. 
In Jonah chapter 1, there's a series of events. God calls Jonah to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't like Nineveh. Uh, he doesn't want this to go to the city. It's this strange city that God loves, but Jonah doesn't want to go there. So he catches a ship going in the exact opposite direction and to the very utter ends of the empire, to Tarshish. So God sends a storm to stop Jonah, and all the sailors on the ship, the pagan sailors, are freaked out. They're praying to their gods. They realize Jonah is asleep down in the hole of the ship. They wake him up, say, pray to your gods. And uh, Jonah, when he gets up there, doesn't pray. He says, just throw me overboard. That'll stop the storm. So Jonah is thrown overboard, and as soon as he hits the water, the storm begins to subside. The sailors worship God, but Jonah is left there, and Jonah is sinking. Now, a little bit of the culture in the ancient Near East, they didn't have swim safe safety lessons for infants back then, okay? It wasn't standard. I know in California, uh, in a lot, a lot of neighborhoods, it's just standard that you give your kids you know, safety lessons. Jonah is going to die. Okay, he is in the open ocean, and he's an Israelite, and they're landlubbers, and he's going to drown, and he knows it. And that's where we left it last week. But in verse 117, we have arguably the most famous verse in the book of Jonah. But the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish. You know, in the midst of all the chaos, when everybody's going crazy, and everybody's screaming, Jonah gets thrown overboard, God's just in this position of power, like, well, I'll just go send the fish. I like that. God just stays cool, calm, collected. And it says he sends a great fish. And this word great is important. See, God is associated with the word great in the first chapter. God says to Jonah, arise and go to the great city of Nineveh. Turns out that God has a heart for this great city. Jonah jumps on a ship heading the opposite direction, so God sends a great wind. And then that great wind produces a great storm. These pagan sailors are then filled with a great fear. And then finally, God sends a what kind of fish? Great fish. And here's the moral of the lesson here. Here's the story. God, in the book of Jonah, is up to something great. God is up to something big. God is up to something great. Meanwhile, Jonah has another word associated with him, and we saw this last week. If God is associated with the word great, the word that's associated with Jonah is down. God says to go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down to a ship headed to Tarshish. Then he goes down into the hole of the ship, and then when the storm gets bad, he gets thrown down into the sea. Jonah is going down, down, down. And so we see that um, while God is up to something great, Jonah is looking down, and he's going down. He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. Another word associated uh, with, uh, with um, Jonah is being swallowed up. This word, swallow up, God sends a fish that's going to swallow him up. And, you know, if you were reading this and you were part of ancient Israel, that would have jumped out to you. Because throughout the Old Testament, there is this, God talks about if God's people reject him and rebel against him, they are in danger of being swallowed up by their sin and by their enemies. Hosea 8.8, 8, Jeremiah 51.5. Here's a verse that uses swallow up. This Psalm 124, listen to this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, 
we would have been swallowed up alive. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then we, have, we would have drowned in the raging waters. To be swallowed up is to be overcome by something such that it takes your life. It's to encounter a force that overtakes you. And what we see in chapter 1 is that long before Jonah was swallowed up by this fish, Jonah had been swallowed up by something else. See, Jonah decides that he doesn't need God. He's going to do things his way. God's not doing what Jonah wants, so God is going to have life on his terms. And as Jonah goes along, he becomes more and more bitter and sullen and filled with self-pity, and it gets so bad at the end of chapter 1, he's suicidal. He says, just throw me in. He tells the pagan sailors, just throw me in. It's interesting that he wants to be thrown in. Last week, somebody came up to me after church and said, I have a question for you. Why does Jonah want to be thrown in? I mean, why doesn't he just jump in? You know, he's thrown in because it tells us that he's actually lost his capacity to choose. He's become so overtaken by his bitterness and his rebellion and his sullenness and his self-pity that he has to be thrown in. Jonah, indeed, wants something more than God. He wants something that God doesn't want. He's on his own plan and program. He's given himself over to something, and that is then bringing self-destruction into his life. And the word that comes to mind when I think of this is the word addiction. That might be the word we have in our vocabulary when we think of the dynamic that's going on for Jonah. He's become overtaken by something that's controlling him and sucking the life out of him. So Jonah has been swallowed up by his anger and bitterness. He has himself thrown overboard. And this is the part of the story where your imagination can go a little crazy. I, I love to surf. I love the ocean. I grew up surfing up in Santa Cruz, which has lots of seaweed. Apparently, Jonah had some seaweed wrapped around him in the story. You know, and, and there's a lot of life when you surf up there. And I don't like it. I don't like looking down and seeing something swimming by. Like, I like to have the illusion that I'm alone in the ocean without other critters. Well, Jonah is thrown into the ocean. I mean, enter into his world for a second. He knows this is sure death. The, the guy is going to drown. He's in the middle of the ocean. And, and then he realizes, hold on just a second. I'm not alone. You know, Jonah is thinking it's as bad as it can get, but it's not as bad as it can get. Something dark starts lurking nearby. And he turns and he sees a giant mouth open up. I mean, I don't know how big this mouth was, but it was big enough to swallow him whole. And what in the world was that like? What in the world was it like to be swallowed whole? What was it like to go down the throat of that thing and then to land inside the belly of this giant fish? Well, the interesting thing is, is that Jonah now is in a position to pray. Let's look at the content of Jonah's prayer. These things are out of order. I'm missing a slide or something. Context, okay, I deleted a slide. Oh, well, imagine that says the content of Jonah's prayer, okay? <laughs> I must have erased it accidentally. Look at verse two, 117 to two one. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So, with this traumatic experience, Jonah is finally in the position to pray. He's finally, I mean, he's hit rock bottom. 
Now, why is he in the position of prayer? Well, in a certain sense, he's in the position to pray because he's got nothing else to do. He's got time on his hands, <laughs> okay? Like, God has basically said, like, time out, dude, <laughs> okay? Uh, he can't look at his, you know, iPhone. You know, he doesn't have screens to distract him. He doesn't have a busy schedule. He's got time on his hands. He's got three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. That, that actually is an idiom that means a lot of time, Okay? Um, that's what that would have sounded like to the, to the first reader. So he's got time in his hands. But the real reason why he's in the position to pray is found in verse 2. In my distress, I prayed. See, Jonah is ready to pray because Jonah has become so needy. Jonah is in a crazy situation. Jonah is in a position where his worst nightmare has been realized. In ancient Israel, the sea was a terrifying place. The sea was a place that was foreboding. It was filled with chaos and darkness. The only thing scarier than being cast into the sea would be to be cast into a stormy sea. And the only thing scarier than being cast into a stormy sea would be to be cast into a stormy sea with giant sea beasts. And the only thing scarier than being cast into a stormy sea with giant sea beasts would be to be cast into a sea a stormy sea with giant sea beasts, and to be swallowed by one of those giant sea beasts. And then the only thing scarier than to be cast into a stormy sea with giant sea beasts and be swallowed by a giant sea beast is to have that giant sea beast head down to the bottom of the ocean. Because in the imagination of ancient Israel, Sheol, the land of the dead, the shadowy, dark, God-forsaken place where the dead reside, was underneath the ocean. And as Jonah is going down in the belly of this whale, he, he realizes he's going to the most God-forsaken place that he is not going to see or be near God again. He ran from the presence of God, and now he's going to a God-forsaken place. He's traumatized. We already talked about this. I mean, he thought he was going to drown. He was already had that trauma, and they had the trauma of some giant creature attacking him. I, I actually read a few shark stories in order to get ready for this. Some of you like Shark Week. Like, it's traumatic. He was attacked by a giant beast and swallowed. And then he finds himself in the belly. And it's dark. And it's wet. I mean, I, I, I haven't been in the belly of a large fish, but I'm guessing it's stinky. Okay? It's probably very stinky. That's what I like about this, this, this artwork here, right? It's stinky. It's nasty. Um, and uh, he finds himself um, cramped. He says he's wrapped up in seaweed. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm imagining there's not a lot of room for a racquetball game in the belly of a fish, okay? <laughs> so he's frozen in there. And, and he finds himself as the days pass with the realization of his situation. See, his last ditch effort was to take his life on his own terms. But now he can't live or die on his own terms. He is stuck in the belly of a fish. And he finds himself with only one thing that he can do. And that's pray. That's all he's got left. He's got nothing else he can do but pray. He's in this half-alive state, half-dead, half-alive, in the bottom of the ocean, in this beast. He's desperate. He's come to the end of his rope. 
You know, it's so interesting. The first chapter, Jonah has big plans for what he's going to do. I'm going to do this. Forget God. I've got my own plans. I don't like what God's doing. I'm going to go to the other side of the world. I'm going to go on this big trip. And now he finds himself, <laughs> he's got no options. He can't do anything. And it's interesting that it, it's not until he finds himself with no options that things start turning around for Jonah. Only when he realizes he's powerless does the story shift. There's a line in AA that says this, we came to see that we were powerless over our addiction and our lives had become unmanageable. And oftentimes, it takes us coming to the place we are absolutely powerless. We have no other options but prayer that God starts working. In a Jonah-inspired book, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, there's this line. It's only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. For many of us, we live with the illusion, the illusion that we're in control of our lives. And the reality is, is that we live such fragile existences. We live with the perils of life. And when those perils are inescapable, when we're facing our worst nightmare, when we're confronted with our fragility, when the divorce papers are signed, when we're in the back of a police car, when we have to tell our parents the truth that we dread telling them, when the pregnancy test is positive, when we don't get the promotion that we spent our career working for, when we find the growth is malignant, when we find ourselves losing the battle of depression and disease, in other words, when we're desperate, we finally realize all we have is need and all we can do is pray. And the good news of the book of Jonah is that God hears the prayers of desperate people. God hears the prayers of desperate people, even if their desperation is a result of their own self-inflicted stupidity. Isn't that good news? God hears the prayers of desperate people. It doesn't matter if you're Jonah or you're Nineveh, if you're you or me. God hears the prayers of desperate people. But here's the thing. What you need for God to hear your prayers is need. All you need is need. All you need is need. But it's so hard sometimes. It took Jonah a lot of work to get to the place where all he had was need. We don't need a resume of perfect church attendance. We don't need a long list of good things we've done. We don't need the best of intentions. All we need is need. Why don't we say that together? All I need is need. Say it again. All I need is need. That's all we need. Finally, Jonah turns to God in desperate prayer. Oh, I got confused. There it is, the content of Jonah's prayer. That's where we're at. Look at verse 2. We're going to look at what Jonah prays, the content of Jonah's prayer. 
Verse 2 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol. Jonah brings the reality of his situation and his distress to God. He brings it to God. And look at verse 3. He confessed that he was not in charge. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You know, Jonah was the one that said, cast me into the deep. But then he's looking back and realizes, I'm not in control. God is in control. Up to this point, Jonah's thinking, I'm in charge. God says go. Jonah says no. He holds on to the reins of his life. Him being thrown over was his last-ditch effort of being in control. But now he recognizes the whole time his life was in the hands of God. You know, God knows every hair on our head, or the lack thereof. You know, God knows every day you're going to live. God knows how many seconds you have left in your life. Isn't that amazing? God knows our lives better than we can ever imagine. God knows our intentions that we can't see. God knows everything. God knows everything about ourselves. God knows us better than we can ever imagine knowing ourselves. Why in the world do we not cast ourselves upon him? Why in the world do we not turn to him and say, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. You are my hope. He admitted he deserved death, life without God. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah knew in the Old Testament that rebels, the punishment for rebellion, and those who reject God is death. He had fled from God. He rejected God. He deserved to be condemned to a life without God. He deserved Sheol. He deserved it. He had fled from the presence of God. He was heading to Sheol. He was hell-bent. He knew he deserved that. But that's not what he gets. And as he's in the belly of this fish, he realizes, it dawns on him, that this is not God's judgment. This is God's rescue. And we see this in the prayer. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, that's as far from the temple as you can get, because the temple's on a mountain. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He stands in amazement at God's merciful salvation. And this amazement is twofold. It's twofold. Jonah's amazed that God would answer his prayer. And Jonah should be amazed. I mean, think what happened. God said to Jonah, hey, God called out to him. I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's all, forget you. <laughs> right? When God called, Jonah didn't listen to God. And if I was God, and Jonah starts calling to me, I'd be like, hey, find time to call. All right. You know what? Would like to have heard you back in Nineveh, you know, when I called to you. Would have liked to have heard from you back when there was a storm. Would have liked to have heard from you back when you were thrown overboard and you were drowning. What are we now, two, two and a half days into this fish and you're finally calling to me? Hmm, a little late, Jonah. But that's not how God responds. God responds immediately to the call of desperate people. Jonah is amazed by God's generosity in hearing our prayers. But Jonah is also amazed that God took his worst scenario and flipped it around. 
Jonah's amazed by God's ingenious salvation plan. Jonah's amazed that God's rescuing him by a fish. He's being saved by a fish. And this is really quite comical. You know, God took the thing that Jonah feared the most. Jonah sees this thing coming towards him. This is his worst nightmare. In the ancient Near East, like, it, it was the sea and the terrible things that live in the sea. This is the worst case scenario. And God is able to take this thing that he feared so much, his horrible nightmare, his prison, and use it for his salvation. And so his prayer is filled with such joy and gratitude, and a new Jonah emerges. And so the story of Jonah is all about a man who goes down. He hits rock bottom, and he discovers that what he thought was the worst-case scenario actually is the best thing that ever happened to him. Jonah finds out that God had something great in store for him, and even when he was going down, 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 what seemed like a prison was actually the way that God would transform him. What seemed so constricting, so suffocating, so traumatic, so tragic, would actually be what God uses to open up a whole new chapter in Jonah's life. It's an amazing story. And now all Jonah wants to do is to give back to God, to praise God, to sing before God's face in God's temple. I was in Rome a couple summers ago delivering a paper uh, there. I had some time off, uh, and I went to uh, the catacombs. I don't know if you've ever been to the catacombs. But the great thing about the catacombs is you get this exposure to some of the earliest Christian art, these etchings within, within these walls of the catacombs. And I mean, this is, you know, this is before the Sistine Chapel, you know, and Michelangelo and all this. I mean, this is like the most primitive form of Christian art. And you get down in there, and it's just... It's kind of crazy. It, it, I think we kind of idealize the catacombs. We kind of like, oh, the Christians in the catacombs. It's so romantic. Like, it's not romantic. It, you know, you're just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tunnel. It's a dirt tunnel, and there's slots on the side where there's bones, and you're like, ooh, this is crazy down here. And you go down there, and you can find where the Christians had their first art. And the thing that's fascinating is what the Christians were drawn to. These early Christians were drawn to, of all the figures, not Moses, the great lawgiver, not Abraham, the man of faith, not David, the man after God's own heart. Guess who the number one figure is for these early Christians? Jonah. They loved images of Jonah. There's an image of Jonah being spit out of the fish. There they are in the belly of the earth, these early Christians. There they are, a persecuted sect. There they are, life looks terrible. They've decided to follow Jesus, and their life is, seems tragic. But they read the story of Jonah, and they realized that God can take something that seems so dark and so tragic, and he can flip it around. And so I guess the question is, what is it in your life right now that feels like a prison? What stinks? What feels constricting? What feels like this is just tragic? And how might God want to use that in your life to open up a new chapter, to do something powerful? Yesterday I ran into a woman who has this amazing ministry to orphan children where she brings love and care to children who've lost their parents. 
And I started digging a little deeper to find out how she got into this. And I came to discover that she lost her only child, an eight-year-old, to leukemia. And you talk about tragedy. You talk about heartbreak of a mother. And as Jesus carried her through that time, and got her through the ashes and the pain, it opened up her eyes that just as she was no longer with her daughter, the last words her daughter said was, Jesus, her daughter's in heaven. She's no longer with her daughter. She realized that there are daughters and sons here that are no longer with their parents. And God gave her this heart. And now there's so much blessing in the lives of orphans. Something that seemed so tragic and terrible had been flipped around. God can take any situation and he can bring good out of it. And maybe you say to me, wow, I don't know. I don't know. Do you know about my life? Well, I do know about, I don't know about your life, really. I know some of your lives. I'm getting to know your lives. But I believe that. There's something really interesting that's going to happen here. As, at the end of Jonah's prayer, we see that Jonah is going to be spit out by this fish. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 10, chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. That's just funny. Isn't that just funny? Like, what a weird, wacky thing to have happen. One of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is a wacky movie with weird turns and twists. You're like, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. One of the scenes you do not see coming it involves this guy named Lieutenant Dan. Do you remember Lieutenant Dan? Lieutenant Dan loses his legs in Vietnam. Lieutenant Dan is angry at God. Lieutenant Dan is, an, is a raging alcoholic. Lieutenant Dan and Forrest go into the shrimping business together, and they're not catching anything. And there's this one scene where Lieutenant Dan uh, is really angry at God. And there's this giant storm, and Lieutenant Dan, who's this Jonah-esque figure, is up on this mast, and he's raging against God. You call this a storm? This isn't a storm! It's you and me, God! I mean, he's just cursing God and going crazy. And then the next scene is a news reporter saying, we've had a terrible storm, but there was only, and there was only one ship that survived unhurt. And then you see Lieutenant Dan's ship riding into the harbor. It's such a twist, right? I didn't see that coming. And then, the, and then the shrimping business blows up for Forrest and Lieutenant Dan, you know? And what it reminds me is that God can turn anything around, but when God does it, he does it with comedy, right? Forrest comes as comedic. And God has a sense of humor. Right now, this is a funny ending. I know as Christians, we get all, well, can a person survive in a fish? And well, blah, blah, blah. like, you're missing the point of the story. This is comedy. Like, it's pretty darn funny. Here's Jonah, and he gets spit up. He's fish spit. He's stinky. He's undignified. He comes launched out onto this beach. I mean, kids get this. You tell this story in Sunday school, and kids are like, ah, that's the best part of the Bible. That's awesome. Finally, this stuff's getting good, you know? It's just funny. And, and so I hope you get the joke that God saved him with a fish. Like, that's, you know, God's just like, all right, you're drowning. Okay, just get a fish over there. You know, like, that's God. God has this comedic aspect. The story of Jonah looks like a tragedy. Jonah's life looks like a tragedy, and God makes it a comedy. So what is the comedic result? Jonah's life shifts from tragedy to comedy. What is the difference between tragedy and comedy? 
Um, one of my favorite uh, series is Dante's Divine Comedy. And if you read the Divine Comedy, there's not a lot of slapstick in the Divine Comedy, okay? It's using the word comedy in a different sense. You see, historically, stories have been divided into two kinds, tragedies and comedies. And tragedies were stories that had a bitter, cold ending, stories that there was this unavoidable downward spiral where things are going down, 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 where joy loses and hope loses and love loses. But comedies were stories that moved from sadness to joy where trying circumstances put the protagonist in a situation where they need to rise to a new level. Stories where in the end joy wins, and hope wins, and love wins. And so here's the question. What about your life? We can't help but try to understand the story of our life. We are narrative creatures, and every day we add a new day to the narrative of our lives. And I want to ask you, what about the story of your life? Is it a tragedy? God can make your life a comedy. A story where joy and life and love wins in the end. As I said before, maybe you think, well, you don't know my story. You don't know. You don't know the financial hardship. You don't know the divorce. You don't know about my children. You don't know how hard things have been. You don't know about my health. And you're right, I don't. But I know that God can take your story and turn it into a comedy. And how do I know that? I know that because part of the reason why the story of Jonah, his death-defying deliverance captivates us, is because it points to another story and another character. There are so many interesting parallels between Jonah and Jesus. Both were prophets from the region of Nazareth. Both were able to calm storms by their actions. Jonah's name means dove, which is translated also, it means given to a beloved one. And when Jesus was baptized, a dove came and the father said, behold, my beloved son. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three nights in the belly of a big fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How can your story move from tragedy to comedy? Through Jesus. A number of years ago, six, seven years ago, I found myself where my life was tragic. And I didn't know how I was going to make sense of it. And I was driving down the street and I had to pull over because I was having a panic attack. And while I was sitting there on the side of the road, I heard a voice that said, as loud as can be, I don't know if it was in my head or audible, it said, your life is hidden in Christ. And when I heard that, it was like the weight of bearing my life and trying to make it make sense just dropped. I didn't need to do that. It wasn't my job. When I got home, I opened up my email. I had an email from a friend of mine who's a professor in Scotland, Scottish guy. He said, I was praying for you this morning. And for some reason, when I was praying, I was led to pray that you would realize that your life is hidden in Christ. And I opened the next email. It was from this guy named Josh Swanson, who was a pastor in Albuquerque, a good friend of mine. He said, Bob, I don't know what this is about, but I was praying for you today, 
And I was led to pray that you'd realize that your life is hidden in Christ. Jesus says, why are you trying to make your life work? Climb onto my back. Find your story in mine. Find your life wrapped up in me. Meet me at the cross. And join me in the resurrection. Praise be to God.